Tonight we're talking about intentionality. Again, that's a series that we're on, being intentional. Uh, this is the fourth of uh, fifth series about intentionality. Tonight I want to talk about the intentional love, humility, and unity of Jesus. And I want to start by reading 1 John 2, 3 through 6. And if you've got your Bibles or your, your iPads or iPhones, go to there. 1 John 2, 3 through 6. It says this. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Verse 4 says, whoever says, I know him, but does not do his commands as a liar, and that the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know that we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. So I'm just going to underline that in my notes, and I'm going to underline that in my Bible as well. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. If we're going to say that we are believers of the way, followers of Jesus, however, whatever label you want to put on yourself as a Christian, as a Christ follower, as a little Christ, in order to even call ourselves a Christian, it has to be more than filling out a decision card and saying a prayer. Come on, somebody. It's got, it's got to be more than just saying, I'm a member of XYZ Church. It's got to be more than taking communion and getting baptized. It has to literally be applied to our lives and follow in the very footsteps that Jesus followed. In other words, do what Jesus did. I love the question that came out. Uh, this was years ago. Uh, there was a book called, um, oh, stink. It just jumped on my head. I think it's In His Steps. Is that right? It was In His Steps. And that's where What Would Jesus Do came from. And so what the question was asked, and it really transformed the city, what would Jesus do? And so they would ask the question when they were faced with a disagreement in their family, when they were faced with injustice in their city, they would literally ask the question, what would Jesus do? And so it's been, it's been so overused. We know this, right? Because it's on all our little rubber bracelets. It's on signs at football games. It's in the end zones. It's WWJD is everywhere. And I think it's just fair, it's fair to ask that. But we can't stop at the question. We have to move on to the action of doing what Jesus would do. And so we, we ask the question, which is good. It prompts our heart to begin to think. But now we need to move into actually living like Jesus lived. And I believe we can find these three tenets in his life. Now go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 through 47. Jump on your phones or your iPads or Bibles. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 through 47. I've got mine marked, so I cheated, sorry. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 through 47. This is the beginning of the Beatitudes. And so if you've ever been through the book of Matthew, you, this is where Jesus sort of starts to unwrap this new way to live. He starts to unwrap this new way to say, hey, I love that you guys are trying to obey the law. That's really good. But I'm here to tell you that I fulfilled the law, that the law is now fulfilled. I heard this one guy say this. He said, it's like saying you needed to go through high school, but high school's done. Okay, and I signed the diploma, right? It doesn't negate high school. It just means high school's done. And so as a nation, you had to go through high school, but now I'm going to take you into your master's degree. Does that make sense? So now we're moving into these new commands. It doesn't negate the old ones. It just means that the old ones have been fulfilled in Jesus. Uh, it all makes sense, right? So Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 through 47 you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I love that we sang tonight, you know, hey, I'm going to sing hallelujah in the presence of my enemies. But I would tell you, love 
your enemies and pray for those that persecute you, that you might be children of your Father in heaven. Listen to this. It's like our salvation message is so jacked up. We think that salvation means doing all these things, but in reality, salvation is pretty simple. Love your enemies, love one another, so that you can be children of your Father. Isn't that fascinating? Like, well, how do I get saved? Love. Love, those, love the unlovable. Love those that nobody loves. No, love, love your enemies. Love those that persecute you. Pray for those. How do I become a child of God? Love. Lead with love. Jesus lead, led with love. He goes on to say, that you might be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? However, even the tax collectors are doing that. And if you greet only your own people, if you have your Bibles, underline that. If you greet only your own people, and I'll, I'll unpack that in a minute. What are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, now, I just want to pause here for a minute. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Isn't it fascinating that that was not a break in a conversation? That's not a break in subject. That's right along with how do I be in alignment with the Father? Love. How do I be perfect like God? Love. How do I understand God's heart? Lead with love. Jesus led with love, with intentionality. He loved those that, that for, for a century, for millennial, people had trampled under the wheels of injustice. Jesus loved them. Jesus reached out to them. If you want to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, love those that are unlovable. Love your enemies. Love those that persecute you. Love those who are standing against you. Love those whose opinions might be different than yours. Love, love those who you don't agree with. Love those who it's hard to be around. Love the argumentative. Love the hateful. Love, love the mad. Love the angry. Love. That's what breaks through. The guns of war and the guns of oppression do not change anything. It only begets more violence. But love, there's nowhere to go but love. Love covers a multitude of sins. Think about that. Innumerable amount of injustices can be covered by love. In other words, they're made right. The justices are made right with love. I want to encourage you guys, if you can, and you have find the time, read the Book of Joy. The Book of Joy is an interview between the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu, Bishop Desmond Tutu. They are an amazing dichotomy of a belief system. So you've got the Buddhist belief system on one side, and you've got Christianity on the other, and yet somehow they're able to come together under the auspices of love and respect for one another, and they're able to have a conversation, and literally, it, one is in exile, and one is battling cancer, and yet they still laugh together, they still find joy together, they find that love is the key, love is the answer, even when there's a huge chasm of differences in their own belief system. Lead with love. When we receive the message of love and live like Jesus, we need to know how Jesus loved and lived, right? So if we're going to say in 1 John chapter 2, if we're going to say that we are in him or say that we're Christians or followers of the way or however you want to say that, then we need to understand how Jesus lived. And Matthew chapter 5, you guys, is just a great place to start. 
It's a great place to start to see how Jesus actually lived, not how he only lived, but also, also how he's now commanded us to live. And love with intentionality was the first thing. He lived in love, he lived in humility, and he lived in unity. Jesus was the Son of God. His love transcended nations. His love transcended slavery. His love transcended the kingdom that was in rule. His love transcended those tax collectors that were part of his crew, that were in absolute animosity with the fishermen that were part of his crew. His love could bridge. His love could calm divides. His love could part waters. His love would make a way. And that's how we are to live The smile, the touch, the love that we have for one another. Listen, my friends, it is not about the way you dress, the way you talk, the way you do your hair, the church you go to, the pew you sit in, the chair you sit in, the songs you sing. That will never determine your rightness with God. He says, if you want to know who my disciples are, you'll be able to tell by the way they love one another. And it starts in the house of God. It starts here in our hearts. And it doesn't matter if you disagree, you love. It doesn't matter if, if you like, man, you're on the opposite planet that I am right now. You still love. And that happens at our kitchen table. It happens in our marriages. It happens with our children. Because love transcends every disagreement. Love transcends every argument. Love transcends everything that we are bound to by our philosophies, by our political stances. Love breaks through that. Love wins. Love does. Love is. The second thing that Jesus was, was he was humble. In order for us to really love one another, we have to lead with humility. I just read an amazing book called The Ideal Team Leader. It was um, uh, written by the same guy who wrote The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. If you're in leadership at all, so you probably read one of those or whatever. But The Ideal Team Leader is an allegory, actually a business fable about how to hire and coach and actually sometimes let go people of your organization. There's three things that Patrick Lencioni claims that are the tenets of any system, any business system. Number one thing we need to look for in business and hire for, by the way, so if you're an entrepreneur, this is good for you, is humility. Hire for humility. There's actually a litmus test that that he uses in his businesses now that hires for humility. When Teresa and I were in New York City, we were at Next Jump, and Charlie Kim, the CEO, co-CEO, along with Megan Messenger, said the number one thing that they hire for is not talent, although they want talented people, right? If you're going to be in a software company, you need to know what you're doing. I mean, you can't be like, hey, I'm an awesome taco maker. Awesome, we'll help you start a taco truck. But right now, we're in an engineering company. So we need engineers, obviously, but we don't want a bunch of smart jerks in a room. We want humble people who know what they're doing, obviously, but they want to lead with humility. And Jesus was the perfect example of how to lead with humility. Jesus never touted his rank. He never said, I'm the son of God. Watch my, you know, sprout some wings and throw some, I don't know, poison arrows at the devil. I mean, he just never did that. He always led with humility. He was always with the most humble. He was always walking the streets. I mean, this guy could have been ascended to power, but he knew that real power came through humility. My friends, listen, power doesn't come through title or rank. Power starts, true power, 
Understand what I mean by power. Power is upside down in our, in our culture. Real power, power of his resurrection power, power stuff, comes through humility. It comes through dying first. If you want to be associated with the power of his resurrection, go hang out with those who are suffering. Then you'll understand what real power is. I love the statement in Schindler's List when he says, you know, um, you, you're always in control. I was talking, I was Amand and um, Schindler were talking and they, the one dude was drunk. He says, I never see you drunk. You're always in control. He goes, that's power. There's a German accent. That's power. And Schindler says, no, 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 no. Power is the ability to forgive. Power is the ability to set free. Power is in humility. Jesus walked with humility, with intentionality. Everything he did was from a humble perspective. It, listen, if you were to read through the Gospels, through the lens of humility, you'll see that Jesus broke all the laws. He, but we say break, but he was really fulfilling all the laws. So when he would touch a woman that was bleeding, uh-uh, big no-no. What he was doing, I'm fulfilling that. I'm going I'm to wrap that law up. So come here, sweetheart. You, you've got some major issues, and I want to touch you, and I want to heal you. Oh, man, you're dealing with some major, some major demons right now, bro. Come here. Come here. Yeah, but I'm unclean. That's okay. I've already fulfilled that. So when I get to touch people and I lead with humility and I hang out with these people, that's Jesus actually fulfilling the law. I'm wrapping that up. So come on. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Come to me, and I will show you the perfect rhythms of grace. Come to me, and I will show you a better way to live. Take my yoke upon you. Take my lifestyle upon you because it is easy, and I want you, I want you to learn from me. I want to teach you. I want to lead you. I want to guide you in this way of intentional humility. In the midst of our pain, in the midst of our enemies, we still act with humility. If we love our neighbors and we act in humility with them, now what I said when I said our neighbors are those who people look like us, talk like us, act like us. They're our people. They're our tribe. If we do that, you know, Jesus is like, hey, even the pagans do that. Now, the pagans simply means the universal way the system works, right? So if you're around a bunch of pagans, pagans like pagans. Christians like Christians. They like to hang around the people that they know that are, that are, that are, that are familiar to them. However, Jesus is saying humility and love will bridge that gap from pagan to Christ's followers, and that's what I want to do. As a matter of fact, that's why I came to this planet, guys. It's for you to understand that the way to change it, to make it look like the garden like we opened up this series with, is for you to lead with humility, intentionality of love. That's the way you're going to change things. It won't be through the weapons of war. It won't be through the power of money. It won't be through political arms. It won't be through whoever's president or whoever's vice president or whoever's prime minister or whoever's king. It doesn't matter. What will change the planet will be love and humility. Abraham Lincoln said this, Did I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? <laughs> Isn't that good? <laughs> Don't I destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? And so I love what Jesus would do. He'd say, brother, sisters, my friends, I used to call you servants. No longer do I call you servants. I call you my friends. My friend. When Judas came to actually in the garden to destroy Jesus, really to just end his ministry, he was going to betray him. He was going to point him out. He was going to say, this is the guy that's causing all the problem. He said, my friend, my friend. I love you, my friend. 
Jesus was showing us the way to live. If we're going, again, I'm going to just beat this into our heads. If we're going to say that we are believers and we're Christians, then we need to live like Jesus lived. And those who will come to hurt and harm, shall we not rid all of ourselves of our enemies when we make them friends? How, how then shall our enemies exist if, in fact, they are our friends? For we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, my friends, do we? We wrestle against principalities. We wrestle, we wrestle against the systems or thoughts of this world, patterns of this world. Brian Zond put it this way. When, we, when the Bible says since the foundations of the world, it was the, actually the beginning of a system that was against love, humility, and unity. See, he's, he's not talking about creation. Creation isn't what, what God is talking about, like, from the foundations of the world. From the foundations of the world goes back to the sin of Cain, to literal foundations of a city that was built on a system of murder, that was built on a system of injustice, that was built on a system of pride. That's what he's referring to. So when he says from the foundations of the earth, he's not talking about God's beautiful creation, like this has been going on since the foundations of the earth. He's talking about the system that killed Jesus. He's talking about a system that is against the way of the kingdom. He's talking about a system. So my, my friends, we're not fighting one another. We're fighting against a system that's been engaged since the fall of man. We're fighting against a system that's filled with pride and, and, and power struggle. And what do they say about people in power? What's the number one um, agenda of people in power? Stay in power. Right? <laughs> if, I mean, listen, watch how hard people will fight in this next election just to stay in power. Won't have any real answers or solutions. They just want to stay in power. And whoever doesn't have power wants to get power back. And we just keep going through the cycle over and over and over and over again until we learn that we're not fighting against a political party. We're not fighting against one another. It is a system, a mindset, a thought process that is filled with pride, which is anti-humility. It's anti-Jesus. It's anti-Christ. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that the anti-Christ spirit has been here on the earth forever. It's nothing new. Anti-Christ spirit has been here. It's, just, it's not like, oh, my God, the anti-Christ is going to come when 666 is plastered on somebody's head. Uh, okay, put your left behind. That's great fiction, right, your left behind series. That's really good fiction, and it's fun to read, but it's not gospel at all nor is it even good theology or eschatology. That's not what it means. The spirit has been here, the spirit of pride, the spirit of lying, the spirit of faking, the spirit of power in a system that has been here since the foundations of the earth. Our fight is not against one another, as I said. It is against a system of injustice, one of destructive power grabbing and retaining laws. This is the war we fight against. Beginning of the system that is against these three tenets. This leads me to my final thought tonight. Hey, I brought a prop. This might be history making. I don't think in my entire pastoring career, oh God, I hate that, I'm so sorry, my pastoring call, that I have actually ever used a prop. You might be able to remember a time. I don't think I've ever used a prop. It's good for me to use slides. I mean, that's a step, that's a step up for me, so I'm really excited when I use a slide. But I have brought a prop tonight. Aren't you excited? So, so I was asking the Holy Spirit this week, what can I say, what can I do to get across this last point of unity? If Jesus lived in love, intentional love, intentional humility, and intentional unity. 
So what I want to do is I want to illustrate, perhaps, now this came to me in a dream, actually. So it's, I, I really believe it's going to resonate with somebody. And, I, and after I thought about it, I'm like, this is the stupidest thing anybody's ever seen. So I'm going to ask Teresa to come up and help me. So this is, as you know, an apple. Simple. And like, well, how is this going to define unity? So I brought this handy-dandy thin slicer, and Teresa's going to start slicing this apple. It's all set. How about you hold the mic and I do it? Can you got it? Okay, you just got to just go. Just, yeah, there we go. Okay. That's, yeah, there we go. Okay, okay, perfect, perfect, stop. So this is the example, you guys, of what I got in a dream for unity. Oh, okay. Okay, this is, this <laughs> <laughs> Teacher's pet. All right. So when we, I think we're good. That, that is a cool tool, isn't it? Like these like apple crisps. Yeah, you want to pass the apple around? Hey, would you slice them up and then we'll just have a little communion. All right. Now, if you look at this apple slice, you'll see that it still contains all the characteristics of an apple. Right? Nothing's changed about it. The, 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 um, the molecular, the molecular makeup, the, the atoms that are floating around, the, the thing that makes this thing an apple is still all intact. This is a picture of unity. Because although this is still an apple, it still has two sides. It still has two perspectives. And if you're on one side of the perspective, you're actually getting a different perspective than I am. You're seeing a different part of the apple than I am. And although if we break down our most simplest human behavior to its thinnest part, we still may not be able to see each other clearly. And I'm, this is where I think it's going to really help you. Because unity doesn't even show up until you can't see things clear. If, let, let me say this. If, if we all agreed on everything, would unity even matter? Would it even be a word? It wouldn't even be an issue because we could all see through the apple clearly. But because it's a little opaque, I can't clearly see your point of view, although it is still 100% an apple. It is 100%. Nothing has changed about this apple. It will taste the same if I eat it in this thin slice or if I eat it from its original structure in a big clunk apple. I could turn it around. It's still an apple. Everything you see hasn't changed. This is a picture of unity that we can't see. There's always two sides to the same thing, although it is still held in 100% of its original state. Now, as we talk about our human nature, we see that we see some things through the same lens. We're looking at this from the same perspective. Although when we get together, picture this as our lives, in its most basic human function, sliced down to the basic morals of humanity, we're still apples, but we still have two points of view. And as a matter of fact, even though it's an apple, I can't see through it. It's cloudy to me. I don't see it 100%. But as humans, we can say, I know that you think differently than me. I know that you believe differently than me. I know that you might have come to Christ differently than I did. 
The way I came to Christ was your typical, I mean, I don't want to go to hell, come to Christ type of decision, right? I got the hell scared out of me to just make a decision, fill out a card, go get baptized. That was the way I came to Christ. Then I realized that it really wasn't about me, that he chose me. And then I realized that he didn't really choose me. He activated my choice for him. And it was all like jumbled together. And it was awesome. Our whole point of unity is living together as one, even though we have different perspectives. Even though we can't see through the apple, we still hold the apple as one in one structure, one beautiful slice, one beautiful, mm, tasty, green granny apple. That was my first prop ever, so you're welcome. And you got a little snack, so there you go. We are, <laughs> and I fed, the, I fed the multitudes. Yeah, we need a little peanut butter or caramel. That sounds really good. Caramel, sorry. There, it's, there you go. Hold up your apple. Every, hold up your apple slice. There you go. That's, that's my point. All right. Hey, listen, guys. I uh, want to finish tonight by just sharing this, this truth. We are facing many, many issues, even in the church. It's, it's dividing our church. It's dividing our walks of life. And I believe the one thing that Jesus really always wanted in his body was unity. He said how beautiful and lovely it is when the brothers dwell together in unity. You might have all come through different paths, different walks of life, different marriage experiences, different parenting experiences. Those of you who are married, you know that, wow, this woman was raised completely different than I was. This, she is, okay, I don't get it, right? I know I was completely different. Even from our holidays, even from our Christmases, even from everything that we did, it was completely different. However, even though we might have come together through different avenues, through different experiences, uh, some of us have gone through uh, very strong denominational experiences, right? If you're a strong denominationalist, just pop your hand up real quick, right? So, right, Baptist, Lutheran, uh, Lutheran, I mean, just some crazy stuff. So, we've come to this space right now in history, gathered as a family, under the banner of unity. There's something, uh, was at a, um, a poker game last night, actually, and there was a guy sitting across the table from me, and he, and sort of tongue-in-cheek, he said, hey, man, tell me the doctrine of your church. If I, just tell me the doctrine of your church. I'm like, um, hmm, uh, unity and diversity. We're Baptists without the legalism and charismatic without the weirdness. We have three tenets of faith that we live by, community, culture, and creator. And he goes, actually, I was only kidding, but that's really good, dude. Unity and diversity. Diversity of thought, diversity of patterns, but there has to be that overarching feeling. I know I'm still part of the apple. I'm thinly sliced, and at the base of our human nature, nothing's changed. We are the same. We are in unity. Different experiences can change the way we live, but it doesn't change our basic human being under the children of God. The only way back, my friends, is to live and love like Jesus did. Live in humility, unity. I'm sorry, love, humility, and unity. Let me close with this, um, this 
excerpt of a message from Dr. Martin Luther King. This was told in uh, 1957. So things were just getting fired up in, in the uh, civil rights movement, and he was uh, very encouraged. He, and I encourage you, by the way, to just go to YouTube and, and just find some really good, there's some hidden speeches um, that have never really been aired from NBC on Dr. Martin Luther King and, and, and how later in his life he um, was, I wouldn't say discouraged, but he, he'd come to realize there's a long, 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 long road for injustice to be satisfied. So let me read this to you. He said, I think I mentioned before that some time ago my brother and I were driving one evening to Chattanooga, Tennessee from Atlanta. He was driving the car, and for some reason the drivers were very discourteous that night. They didn't dim their lights. Hardly any driver that passed by dimmed his lights. Now, if you remember, you have brights and dims, and if you were driving in 1957, your button was where? On the floorboard. That's right. Left foot, click, click, get your dims down. They didn't dim their lights. Hardly any driver that passed by did so. As I remembered very vividly, my, my brother A.D. looked over and in a tone of anger said, I know what I'm going to do. The next car that comes along here and refuses to dim the lights, I'm going to fail to dim mine. And I'm going to pour them on in all their power. I'm going to pour them on in all their power. And I looked at him right quick, and I said, oh, no, don't do that. There would be way too much light on the highway, and it will end up in mutual destruction for all. Somebody got to have some sense on this highway. I love it. Then he goes on to say, somebody must have sense enough to dim their lights. That's the trouble, isn't it? That is all, that as all the civilizations of the world move up the highway of history, so many civilizations have looked at other civilizations and refused to dim their lights. And they decided to refuse to dim theirs. As, as Arnold Toynbee tells us, that out of the 22 civilizations that have risen up, all but about seven have found themselves in the junk heap of destruction. Think about that. Two-thirds of historical civilizations have been destroyed because they refuse to dim their lights. It's because civilization fail to have sense enough to dim the lights. And if somebody doesn't have sense enough to turn on the dim and powerful lights of love in this world. Did you catch that? It's not the bright, overbearing, my bright lights are more powerful than yours. It's the dim and beautiful and power of lights, of love. It's so good to understand that when we lower ourselves, we dim our brights, and we say that's what changes history. That's what saves civilization. It is the dimming, not the raising, not the power, not the I'm going to outbright you. It is the dimming of the powerful lights of love in this world. The whole of our civilization will be plunged into the abyss of destruction. And we will all end up destroyed because nobody had any sense on the highway of history. Somebody, somewhere, must have some sense. Men must see, watch this, that force begets force. Hate begets hate. Toughness begets toughness. And it's an all-descending spiral 
ultimately ending in destruction for all and everybody. Somebody must have sense enough and the morality enough to cut off the chain of hate and the chain of evil in the universe. And you do that by love. Isn't that good? You do that by love. Ours is a religion of humility. We serve a, a wounded king. We serve a lamb slaughtered. We serve a wounded Christ. I know growing up, we always would make fun of the Catholics because they kept Jesus on the cross. And we would say, Jesus isn't on the cross. Eh, that's why all the Protestant crosses were empty. But then I found beauty in the Catholics by saying it's a great reminder to always look at the wounded Savior and say, wow, his side is pierced, his hands are pierced, he's bleeding. And yet, in that woundedness, he undid the last enemy, death. Where there is no death, there is no enemy. When we live out our love in these three things, humility, love, and unity, we can come to our senses and dim our lights on the history of life, on the highway of life. We can begin to see real and lasting change in our lifetimes. We really can, my friends. I really believe that, especially in this vitriol vocabulary that we seem to get inundated with every single day. I will leave you again with this one quote, and uh, we're going to do something else real quickly, by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. As you know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was, was a Lutheran that grew up in Germany and um, was during the time of World War II, obviously. He knew the cost of discipleship. He knew the cost that it would take. He'd probably demand his life. But to stand up for injustice that was happening all around him. And while the, the nationalistic tenor was, it's all the Jews' issue, the church sat and did nothing. But he said this, and this has been profoundly impactful for me for the last month or so. He said, we are not simply to bandage the wounds of victims beneath the wheels of injustice. We are to drive a spoke into the wheel itself. I think for so long, we're like, oh, well, there goes another wheel over, you know, a civilization. There goes another wheel over a people group. There goes another injustice just rolling by. I guess we'll go up afterward and see if we can maybe bandage some wounds, but he knew better. He said, we can no longer just afford to do that. We literally have to drive a, a stake, in other words, through the wheel, to change the way the wheel operates. My friends, I think that's what we're here to do.